Welcome to the Immigrant Squared podcast. My name is Anna. I was born in one of the former Soviet republics, raised in a small yet very unique country in the Middle East, and have been living in the U.S. for almost 20 years. I've always been curious about different languages, cuisines, music, and traditions. I also always had a desire to help people become their best self. I invite you to join me on an adventure throughout the world as I discover immigrants' stories, learn about new cultures, and together we find new ways to help immigrants unlock their potential. Hi, Elena. Welcome to the Immigrant Squared podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Where are you joining us from? Hi, Emma. First of all, so so exciting to be here. Thank you so much for having me here. So I'm joining from Melbourne, Australia. That's exciting. exciting. Thank you so much for joining all the way from there. I know you have uh, two immigration stories to tell us about. So how about we start with your first immigration? How was um, that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I was um, born in Moldova. Um, for those who don't know, that's, you know, um, in Eastern Europe, between Ukraine and Romania. And when I was born, it was part of the um, former USSR. Um, and, um, you know, as we all know, USSR collapsed um, in 1990. And a year later, in 1991, my uh, parents, my sister and I migrated to Israel. So I was nine years old at the time. And like, you know, two million other immigrants, we all sort of <laughs> came together in the same wave. And I um, began year three, so grade three um, in Israel. Uh, we lived in Israel for 10 years. And then when I was 19, we made a second migration, which we can talk about. Yeah, you know, so how was go. your immigration to Israel? Um at that age, how was uh, like getting adjusted to school and the language? The language, yeah. Look, as you can imagine, and um, it was uh, it was a massive challenge. It was a big, big culture shock. Um, so we before we came to Israel, I didn't, I had no idea we were even coming. You know, my parents didn't say really anything until like the last minute. I had no idea what migration was. Um, you know, just the fact that it's permanent, we're not coming back, you know, home. And so it was a huge culture shock. Um, the climate was a massive difference from Moldova. Moldova is, you know, like I think the, the highest temperature is like, you know, sort of kind of a very mild heat. And all of a sudden we were in a tropical country in August. Um, we're right middle of August and just that heat hitting you. <laughs> Um, was quite a shock having palm trees everywhere and I remember um, I've never until that point even had you know tropical fruit like bananas or pineapples or anything like that so when we arrived we um, came to stay with my cousins for um, a short period of time and my cousin was like oh what would you like to try you know like it's your first day and I'm like bananas and she's like oh we've got bananas and I was just stunned and shocked that she actually had bananas in her house. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> you know, just trying that was like um, massive. And then two weeks later, school started, you know, not knowing the language, having zero idea of what was being discussed. Um, I actually have a blackout of about two years uh, of not remembering a lot, you know, um, 
so between I guess ages of nine and eleven, there's like only snippets because I didn't know the language. So um, yeah, lots of missed knowledge, you know, gaps in knowledge. Um, I don't even remember how I learned Hebrew. <laughs> Probably TV, something like that. So definitely had its challenges. Yeah. What are some of your uh, really like uh, good memories or any successes uh, from your immigration in Israel? Uh, look, I think um, probably the biggest thing that stands out, probably my proudest moment, is um, a year um, five. So I was 11 years old at the time. And we did like um, a test in Hebrew, you know, the Hebrew language. And I received the high score in class. I received 96 out of 100. And I was like shocked. Um, and I remember like the boys, there were like two boys sitting behind me and they were going, oh, you know, Lena is just like, you know, so excited because she's, you know, like got this high score. And I was thinking, yeah, I am. <laughs> because like, I don't even remember learning Hebrew. And so getting that was like a big um, proud moment for me. That's great. I think it's really important as immigrants with all the struggles we have to also celebrate our wins as small or big as they are, right? Absolutely. So after living in Israel, um, you immigrated to um, Australia. What prompted that immigration? Why did your family decide to move? Yeah, move again. Good question. <laughs> With all the hordes of the first migration, why would you do it again? So the story behind that was that um, while my uh, parents and my sister and I moved to Israel, my um, grandparents, uh, aunties and uncle from my mom's side, they were kind of a, a, a deciding where to migrate. You know, um, they could go to Israel and um, there was a possibility of Australia because my grandpa actually had some siblings living there already from the 1970s. So they were waiting to see which way it's going to go, and they ended up getting the permission from Australia. So they migrated to Australia at the same, well, not the same time, but the year after we came to Israel. So the whole time we were in Israel, my mom was obviously missing her family so much, and she really wanted to um, spend time with them as they were getting older. So as soon as I finished high school, um, we, uh, well, my, my mom, I guess, said, like, this is, a really good time now for us to move uh, because I was about to start university. And um, that was really the purpose. I don't think we would have otherwise considered migrating again, but the desire to be reunited with the family is really was a very strong pull to make yeah, a second migration. Absolutely. So mm. how was uh, that journey? Uh, look, it was challenging. You know, you think it will get easier second time around, but I migrated when I was 19. Um, you know, already have gone through the journey in Israel. I made friends, you know, and um, was really looking forward, I guess, just to continuing the journey with, you know, those friends. Um, so starting again from scratch when you're 19, going into university and um, I thought my English was good when I was studying in Israel, but coming to Australia, apparently my English was not that great. So I had to really pick it up again. Once again, you start from the bottom. Once again, you know, um, you kind of, uh, you don't know anybody. Um, university is a huge world compared to high school. So that's another adjustment again. 
Uh, so definitely had the challenges. I was missing Israel a lot, and I was um, I tr- made a few trips back just to visit my friends uh, in a few, few in the first few years because I was missing them so much. So, what are some of the things that you wish someone would have told you about immigrations? <laughs> Look, I, I really, you know, I guess, yeah. Now that we know what what it's like, I think it would have been lovely to have um, maybe more. Um, normalizing an awareness of what it's like, what a huge, massive change it is. Um, and I guess having more support services when we um, arrive, especially I think for Israel, when you're young and you've got no idea what's going on, I think it would have been really good just to even just explaining the process and the feelings that you know a migrant might feel because it's such a mix of emotions. Um, you know, it's only when it came to Australia and um, started studying psychology that it kind of I was laid out this culture shock and it finally put into words what I was feeling. Um, and I've never heard that term before. So I think it would have been really good, you know, just a bit of education of like what you can expect. Yeah. So what kind of support services you think would have been helpful? Yeah, so once again, I suppose it depends on the age of the migrant. Um, I, I suppose being, um, let's say, when I was like in Israel, nine years old, would have been really good just to have an adult, you know, for example, just, you know, maybe just talking or allowing, um, you know, to express like what's going on for you as opposed to me keeping everything to myself because there was really no one to speak to. Um, <clears throat> you know, the parents were busy. My sister was really young. She was five and a half. Um, and I became sort of the carer for, for my sister, you know, the full-time parent. Um, so, yeah, having, I guess, just that space to express yourself, for someone to say, you know what, it actually makes sense. It makes sense that you're missing your family or, you know, your friends in, you know, back in Moldova. Or it makes sense that this is also different. Um, you know, yeah, I, I know I'm speaking sort of like... <laughs> hypothetically, because everyone was migrating at the same time. But um, I suppose for future migrants, I think this is a really important support to have. Yeah, because one thing I think a lot of people don't understand is when um, kids immigrate at a young age with their parents, the parents are going through their own kind of migration journey and are struggling in their own way. And they're not able to fully be supportive of their kids. Also, I think they're not professionally trained, like maybe a child psychologist would be, to understand what is it that is going on with the child and how to create that welcoming environment with a sense of belonging, right? Because like you said, when you move to Australia, like you don't know anyone. How do you create that community? So what are some Mm. things that did help you during your uh, two immigrations? Um, look, my, I suppose the first immigration, um, being connected to the culture was really helpful. So, um, I guess without knowing it, but my parents would, uh, bring lots of books, you know, into the house and I was watching, um, you know, like, I guess all classical Russian movies and things like that. So that kind of, uh, still gave me a sense that I belong somewhere. You know, um, so I guess having the chance to still connect to my culture, still connect to the language, um, you know, it was through TV and movies, but still, you know, it's a connection. Um, and um, in Australia, I suppose um, 
I was, I was, I, I did get involved with um, different sort of, I guess, youth clubs and different, um, you know, international student services. I was volunteering, and that way I, I met quite a few people from different cultures. So that was really lovely as well like none of them were from you know former ussr or from israel but they were migrants and they were migrating at the same time as me um some of them even migrated without their families to study so that kind of expanded even more uh you know my perceptions because i was able to understand their experiences too once again normalizing the fact that it's you know this this challenges in that um i mean it's exciting possibly in lots of ways but uh, I think it's nice to meet other people in similar sort of circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. What is some of your advice from your lessons learned to like other immigrants? I suppose with um, other immigrants, I guess the biggest advice I would give is just to um, know that whatever it is that mix of emotions that migrants feel is all normal. Like all of that is making perfect sense. So anyone who's migrated will be able to understand all those feelings of, you know, uncertainty and, you know, and the stress and the anxiety and maybe at the same time excitement because there's a new opportunities. So, um, you know, normalizing and, and just, I guess, knowing that it's normal, whatever it is that you're feeling is normal. Um, and the fact that it's not going to last forever. Eventually, you know, we adapt. Eventually, we do find connections. So the first few years are tough, you know, no doubt, 100% they're tough, but it doesn't last forever, you know. So um, just keep going, I guess, try to make connections the best way you can um, and, and hang on through those tough times because it will get better. Yeah, that is very true. So, Elena, where do you feel at home now? Uh, look, I mean... I do feel a lot uh, very comfortable in Australia. It, it fits my personality really well um, in terms of like, you know, the pace of the life and, and the people. Um, like I'm still obviously foreign. I've got an accent. You know, people immediately ask me where I'm from, even though I've been here for 22 years, you know, I still, um, you know, sound foreign. And that's okay. That's okay. Um, you know, I'm happy to describe where I'm from. I've got no shame about that at all. But yeah, it definitely feels a lot more home compared to the other places where I've been. So when somebody asks you where you're from, I usually say, how, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> do you? <laughs> where, when somebody asks you where are you from, what's your answer? Look, it depends who it is. It depends who it is. If it's, um, you know, a lot... <laughs> If I want to have a quick answer, I'll just say I'm from Melbourne because, you know, I've been here for so long. But if I can tell the person genuinely wants to know where the accent is from, I will say that, you know, um, it's from, you know, Moldova or Eastern Europe. And it's a mixed accent because I've lived in other countries because they say it's not it's not a very, you know, Russian accent. There's something else in there. <laughs> <laughs> so when you feel like you want to keep your kind of traditions of your culture of origin, what are some things you do to maintain that? Yeah, you know what? Like I still watch um, Russian classic music, uh, sorry, not music, movies. Um, so I still, I've got, you know, access to YouTube and, um, you know, like this is something that still keeps me grounded. Um, you know, during the pandemic, Melbourne, you know, the city where I live, uh, went through the longest lockdown in the world, um, 262 days, which was absolutely horrific on, on so many levels. 
and watching those movies kept me grounded you know like the music and the connection to the culture and the fact that you know that there's a predictable ending <laughs> you know it's going to end and it's going to all be good um kind of like kept me you know still positive because we didn't know what was going to happen with the pandemic it was very uncertain so i yeah i still use the same skills that got me through you know the previous migrations yeah absolutely So Elena you also wrote a book called What's Normal Anyway the key to unlocking your mental well-being. Can you talk a little bit about that and how just mental health um comes as an important topic during immigration? Yeah, absolutely. So look, I I wrote this book during one of um Melbourne's long lockdowns. I thought that it was my opportunity to to get it on piece of paper. Um in the book was inspired by my story. So the first um two chapters this the first part is is my personal story. I guess once again, you know, um looking at examining I suppose what was considered to be normal, you know, in former USSR and in some ways the normality of um migrant life in Israel. Um <clears throat> you know, so things that were maybe like to, you know, a western reader would sound quite you know shocking but for us that was that was the normal that was what we were living through um and then the the book is looking at my struggles you know um you know being bullied developing social anxiety and how i overcame all of that um uh, with the help of uh, of a psychology book because um there was no access um to other services at the time there was a lot of stigma about seeking help and i'm hoping that this book is going to help someone else who potentially struggling maybe doesn't know what way to turn to get help for themselves so the book in very detailed way um hopefully very easy accessible way describes um some you know red flags to look out for if someone's struggling um and you know other ways i guess to know perhaps i need to seek help Uh, or other I guess um signs that someone might need help and then how to find it because there's so much seemingly information out there so much help but when it actually comes to the details people don't really know where to start and so i went through you know um in 12 chapters i guess um different ways in how to find um a mental health professional how to know that it's the right person for you um how to make the most out of therapy And the last chapter is how to become your own psychologist which I think like that's my goal for all my clients really just to get that all the tools that they need you know to be able to become their own psychologists. That is very important and I cannot wait to read your book. Um I went through bullying myself um in Israel and just curious if you could share some of the mm-hmm. red flags that people can look out for because and also maybe any advice on how to get mm. over that bullying because for me it took many many years after that bullying and another yeah. immigration from Israel to the US to actually realize how much it traumatized me absolutely yes yes look and i can so so understand what you're saying it's a massive trauma um and um you know when you get a chance to to read my book um you know i did put down that the bullying i was going through in israel got me to a point of suicidal ideation you know i didn't want to live anymore um and um even though i knew i was having really sort of thoughts about 
you know, wanting to die, because there was no assistance and there wasn't any help available, um, it was a really big struggle. So, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky that I, we had that book at home. My dad, thankfully, you know, ahead of his time was attending, you know, self-development workshops. So he brought this book by an, an American author, um, Chuck T. Falcon, and the book called um, Psychology Made Easy. And it had a chapter on suicide, which was very revealing for me about the extent of the distress that I was in. So I guess I guess the biggest um, signs was looking at you know reflecting on what I was going through as well would be you know changes in behavior you know so let's say going from a you know someone let's say who's a bubbly you know open person all of a sudden shutting down and not wanting to engage in the same way for example uh, that's that's one of the um, signs um, crying with no apparent reason. Um, suicidal thoughts, a hundred percent, is um, a red flag. Even if it's a fleeting, you know, oh, I really don't want to be here anymore. Um, up to the point of, you know, planning your funeral, which is sort of uh, going to be that's even more extreme um, at that point. But mainly, it's changes in behavior, changes in like um, um, habits. Uh, for example, um, let's say eating. So you know, all of a sudden, refusing to eat or eating too much. Um, sleep, you know, um, not wanting to sleep or sleeping too much, um, you know, um, changes in in mood that can't be explained by by physiological reasons. Um, with all of those things, you know, it is important to see a doctor because there are some um, physiological conditions that can mimic symptoms of um, psychological distress. Um, so, you know, it's important to go and check um, with the doctor first of all, like you know, blood tests. Make sure there's nothing physical going on, and if the blood test and everything else comes back, you know, as okay, um, a referral to a psychologist is a really good idea. Just once again, going through everything because a psychologist will be looking at, you know, developmental stages as well, kind of a thinking in their mind is what they're describing meets the developmental level, or is that beyond? You know their norm because some things some adjustments are normal you know for example let's say i don't know during puberty we all go through all those ups and downs and that's like part of puberty you know um or um let's say for example you know if you if you are a migrant you know going through those you know like downs and and all of that that would be normal as well because of the situation you know so psychologists and mental health professionals are trained to see is that just the situation or is there something going on beyond that that we really have to be you know quite mindful of um and then they um i guess adjust their recommendations based on what's going on so i guess that's hopefully that's you know <laughs> giving you a bit of a information yeah. around around that actually if we can go back to suicidal thoughts a lot of times sure. uh, people are very isolated when they immigrate and their parents, especially kids, you know, they uh, parents are very busy during their own difficulties and immigration journeys and, you know, learning the language and being able to bring food home and get a job and all of that. Yeah. A lot of times people don't share that thought that they have, you know, uh, of committing suicide. Yes. What are some signs that people around those kids in schools, their friends, their teachers um that interact with them a little more can look out for yeah 
So look, um, very often uh, people who are having suicidal thoughts will somehow will want to say that. Like will, there'll, there'll be um, some sort of um, um, other verbal, you know, like indication, like them saying, oh gosh, I'm sick of this life. Like, you know, I just, I just want to end it all or something like that. Um, there'll be, as I said, you know, um, changes in behavior. So then becoming a little, like more withdrawn within themselves, you know, not wanting to interact with, um, with friends. Um, I suppose like in my case, I was, you know, breaking down in tears in front of, you know, a teacher uh, and classmates over the silliest reasons, um, except that nobody approached to ask what was going on or even like to offer to see um, a psychologist. But there were definitely signs. Um, I told my parents that I wanted to see a psychologist as well. Uh, but because of the stigma, you know, my parents were like, oh, look, no, you're fine. You know, you look fine. You know, like physically you look fine. <laughs> like outwardly you look fine. So um, you don't need to be seeing anyone. Um, so most of the time people will be saying that there's distress. They, you know, I suppose when you're feeling suicidal, and I describe it in my book, there's um, um, a concept called ambivalence. So there's a part of you that wants to die and want to, the part that doesn't want to die, but wants to end that pain. And there's a part that still wants to live. And so when, when the person, because the person is still alive, we know that there's definitely a part of them that wants to live. Yeah. So um, they will be trying to get assistance in, in whatever way. Um, there will be some indicators because if there were 100 percent, I guess, um, decided that they want to end their life, they won't, you know, they won't be there. So for most people, they do indicate in some ways, you know, as I said, verbally or behaviorally, um, they do indicate that they are, you know, in distress and they want assistance. Yeah. No, and I think one thing that you mentioned that I want to go back to that is very important, that stigma of um, seeking help, going to a mental health professional that that's not mm. accepted in a lot of cultures yes. all over yes. the world. Yeah. And I think it's very, very dangerous, especially for children that need somebody to help them to get the help. Because if it's a stigma, but you're an adult that is capable of seeking help for yourself, it's fine. Mm. You'll, you'll get the help. But when yes. a child needs help, but the society the child is growing in the parents that uprooted that child, one immigration, two immigration, sometimes even three, mm. they don't allow that to be accepted. It's very, very dangerous. So I Absolutely. wonder if you have any advice or tips on how we can kind of, you know, get rid of that stigma. I mean, get rid of, I guess, maybe just help those who need help because getting rid of the stigma it's a, it's a generational cultural thing that is not going to yeah. happen unfortunately overnight but just empower those who need help and their community mm. won't accept that yeah yeah look really good points that you're making there um anna um look i think speaking about that uh, all of that is is really important and, and um, normalizing. So I guess, um, you know, for example, with my book, you know, even though um, it was a very challenging thing for me to, you know, describe what I was going through, my intention was for people, hopefully young people to read that and go, 
oh my God, I'm not alone. Or, you know, someone else has been going through that. So I think the more we speak about that, the more people share their own stories and um, others hear that, the more it kind of goes, well, if they can do it or if they can speak about it, I can speak about it as well. Um, and we're quite lucky, I suppose, you know, these days that there's um, help available, not just face to face, but, you you know, um, kids, like I'm not sure about the US, but in Australia, we've got uh, a service called Kids Helpline that kids from ages five onwards can call. They can, you know, um, there's like a web chat, video chats. So lots of different options for, um, you know, young people to access help online. So they don't even have to see the person um, they speak into. They can just, it's like a web service. They can That is really interesting someone. and I think a really good solution. I've honestly, I've been in the U.S. for almost 20 years now. I haven't heard of that. I don't okay, know if it exists yeah. in the U.S. or in other countries, but I think that's a really, mm. really good idea to be able to seek help and communicate the way that you are used to communicating with your friends, like texting, playing a video game, whatever it is. Yes. So that's really good um, that that exists. Ab yeah, absolutely. absolutely. One thing I wanted to ask you about the bullying sure. is... Um, so sure. for those who, you know, immigrated to different places and have been bullied or felt like outsider, um, mm -hmm. a lot of people don't even talk about it until many years later. I mean, I'm one exactly. of them. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> how, um, how would you recommend to, and obviously therapy is not a one session thing, but like, how would you recommend to approach that and work through that bullying and kind of um i guess on be on on the path for healing because it impacts you later in life yeah do you mean for the person who's been bullied is that what you're referring to um look you know um look it once again depends on the ages when the person is coming in whether it's still ongoing whether it's actually happened in the past, I suppose that's sort of a little bit different if it's still ongoing. Um, and, you know, of course, like, uh, <laughs> bullying happens even if you're not a migrant, I've realized. So <laughs> even if you were born in the country and you're like... Absolutely. You know, it just still... hits differently when you're an immigrant. Oh, 100%. 100%. So look, um, once again, I guess... I suppose it's it's likely that there's a lot more awareness going on. Once again, I suppose in Australia, um, and, and my son attends a local school, there's a lot more awareness that's a lot more, um, I guess people are, teachers, educators are more proactive in, um, I guess, I suppose nipping it in the bud. Like, I mean, my son was bullied in, in his school, um, you know, from like grade two or so, and he was born here. So <laughs> mm -hmm. that's why I'm like, uh, yeah, I can see that it was like, differently kind of happens in lots of different ways uh, if you're an adult i do think once again important to to speak about when when people are ready and you know it's important thing that we can't really force anyone to get help or get assistance before a point when they're ready you know so like even for example let's say i'm not sure what age you were when the bullying was taking place but I'm not sure whether you would want to speak to um, a stranger about it while it was going on. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. So, yeah, we can that. use me as an example. I don't mind talking about that. So I was bullied when I was uh, in Israel in elementary school age. Mm -hmm. And um, and I didn't, you know, I, I kind of talked about it with my parents and they helped me. Like they always told me how to defend myself and all that. 
I think my mm -hmm. issue was that I never realized how much that bullying and people telling me like, go back to Russia or go back to Ukraine mm -hmm. or you don't belong here or whatever. Um, I didn't realize how much it impacted me and my like as a person and my character and my confidence until yeah. years later when I was already a, an immigrant for the second time in the U.S. And yeah. I suddenly started realizing that that bullying has caused long-term damage. Right, right, yep. And so you, I guess, what you're saying is that you would have, um, would have, you have preferred to um, to speak to someone at that younger age, do you think? Or do you think it's... <clears throat> I feel like it would have been useful to solve it back then. And... Yeah strengthen you know my image of who I was and become proud of where I came from yeah because it would have made me a bit of a different person and I wouldn't have taken it upon myself as there is something wrong with me yeah that's making so much sense yes and I yes, think I it happens to a lot of immigrants when especially at a young age when you're still even working to form your personality, your identity and all that, and suddenly yes. you're told that you don't belong here and go back to somewhere where like, God knows, I don't remember. My parents left the Soviet Union, Ukraine when I was two. Yeah. So right. it's like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, so who yeah. am I, right? <laughs> That's that's right. The whole formation of identity. That's right. So I think I suppose what you're talking about. I guess that that would have involved, you know, not just let's say um, a school psychologist, but also the involvement of the teacher, the principal. I think when it happens at a young age, it does need a bit of that systemic um, intervention because it's, um, you know, it's not just you. You know, that's part of the system. Oh no! I mean, I had classmates yeah. who are from former Soviet republics and. And they were going yeah. through the exact same bullying. Same thing, exactly. I just exactly. think it impacted them differently. Oh, oh, oh yeah, hundred. And traumas would impact it in different ways. That's making sense. Yes, yeah, so I think like just having that awareness, general awareness in schools and, and teachers. Um, and once again, like I mean, I, I was relieved, um, you know, just to see with it with my son. Like when he was bullied, I just approached the teacher, and it was immediately, you know, cut off. Like there wasn't. I didn't have to be kind of uh, doing too much uh, for it, um, it was just, you know, yep, we're on to it. And that was it. Whereas I guess when you and I were um, in Israel, uh, the teachers were really kind of staying out of that, sometimes even supporting the bullies. So I suppose it was a very different, I guess. Um, Not only that, I think uh, in Israel, oh, it still remains very much a societal problem. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. I think even now, so many years after the big 1992 million people, you know, over a million people, I guess, immigration from the former Soviet republics, mm. there are things that, and stigmas and stereotypes that unfortunately still remain in the society. And mm. people don't understand how hurtful those things could be. Like, for example, when I met some fellow Israelis here in the US, and mm -hmm. they've made jokes about, Oh, but you're from Russia or you whatever. And I'm like, I'm from Ukraine, but it doesn't matter. Like up until the war started, people didn't know the difference. Um, yeah. But, you know, and they don't understand why it's not funny. 
They don't understand why it's like hurtful. And it's because generations upon generations, there's been that division. I think Israel is a very different case and that could be a whole podcast in itself. But the, And I've interviewed yeah. on my podcast a lot of, I have some interviews in Hebrew and some in English, but people mm-hmm. who are from that um, immigration uh, wave, that there's always been that division between those who yeah. were there, those who came from the Middle East to Israel and those who came from Eastern Europe and other parts of Europe um, to Israel. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I definitely agree with you. There has to be some um, systemic support to kids everywhere because their parents when they're going through the immigration um it's so important to help the kids uh while their parents are still struggling themselves right um sometimes the kids speak the language better than the parents so they become like adults very quickly right they're like oh i have to translate for my mom this document that document and all that and they don't get to live through and their own trauma of immigration because they're too busy being the adult in the house, you know, going with mom and dad everywhere yeah. to translate, right? Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah. So, Yelena, thank yeah. you so much for joining the podcast all the way from Melbourne. Uh, is there anything <laughs> else you'd like to share about uh, your book or your journeys? Um, no, look, it's been fantastic speaking to you, um, and I thank you so, so much for having this, you know, platform, having this podcast that just brings to light all those different experiences, and hopefully, you know, others can learn from that, and others, uh, others' journeys will be hopefully easier thanks to um, our conversations here. No, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to episode 50 of the Immigrant Squared podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the podcast. If you're an immigrant, a child of immigrants, a refugee, or an organization that works with these communities and would like to share your story and be on a guest on my podcast, I would love to host you. Please email me at info at alisadel.com. It's info at A-L-I-S-A-D-E-L dot com. Until next time.